that we'll turn to Deuteronomy 22 in a moment. But here's something actually which is purely secular. But what is a trillion? And uh, it's the new million, somebody said. In that strange intersection of economics and politics, there is a new fashion. Trillion is the new billion. One trillion, one dollar bills stacked one on top of the other would reach nearly 68,000 miles or nearly a third of the way from the earth to the moon. A billion is a thousand million. A trillion is a thousand billion. And uh, he said, that this chap was saying that we have become desensitized to just how much money is even a billion. To put a trillion dollars in context, if you spend a million dollars every day since Jesus was born, you still wouldn't have spent a trillion. A million seconds is 11.5 days. A billion seconds is about 32 years. A trillion seconds is 32,000 years. People tend to lump them together because maybe they rhyme. But if you think of it in terms of a jail sentence, do you want to go to jail for 11 and a half days, 32 years, or 32,000 years? So, you know, even a billion, when you think of a billion, a billion seconds is 32 years. Incredible. So that, that's nothing to do with Deuteronomy, but uh, it's interesting. And here's a very disturbing bit of news in the Sunday Times on February the 1st. Of an article by Sarah K. Templeton, who was the health ed editor. And it says, couples who have more than two children are being irresponsible by creating an unbearable burden on the environment the government's green advisor has warned. Jonathan Porritt, we've all heard of him, who chairs the government's, the government's Sustainable Development Commission, says curbing population through contraception and abortion must be at the heart of policies to fight global warming. He says political leaders and green campaigners should stop dodging the issue of environmental harm caused by an expanding population. I am unapologetic, he says, about asking people to connect up their own responsibility for their total environmental footprint on how do they decide to procreate and how many children they think are appropriate. And then they, they start equating children with their carbon footprint. The Optimum Population Trust a campaign group of which Porrit is a patron, says each baby born in Britain will, during his or her lifetime, burn carbon roughly equivalent to 2.5 acres of old-growth oak woodland, an area the size of Trafalgar Square. And uh, he goes on to say, many organisations think it is not part of their business. He says, my mission with the friends of the earth and green pieces of this world is to say you are betraying the interest of your members by refusing to address population issues and you are doing it for the wrong reasons 
because you think it is too controversial, he said. Listen to this. Porat, a former chairman of the Green Party, says the government must improve family planning even if it means shifting money from curing illness to increasing contraception and abortion. But that's very serious. It's just incredible. You see, as soon as we stop believing the word of God and turn to evolution, fellows like Hitler, they were all into that, many of the mass murderers, then the value of life diminishes. And we sacrifice unborn babies on the altar of expediency, and sooner than later the handicapped, the aged, the infirm, it will all come about eventually, won't you see? Then another thing just about Barack Obama, he intends to establish a President's Council for faith-based and neighborhood partnerships within the White House. The Council will work to engage faith-based organizations and help them abide by the principles that federal funds cannot be used to proselytize. He says, if you get a federal grant, you can't use that money to proselytize to the people you help, and you can't discriminate against the people you hire on the basis of their religion. You see, it's called coming around that they're not going to be able to uh, preach and teach the Word of God. You don't wonder why these fellows are so hostile to the Christian message of God's love and yet they're not hostile to the ways of communist and Islamic nations that outlaw genuine Christian ministries. You wonder why. One clue to this, this girl who wrote this article says, one clue may be found in Barack Obama's call to renewal speech way back in June 2006. He said, Democracy demands, not requests, democracy demands that the religiously motivated translate their concerns into universal rather than religion-specific values. And fellas like uh, Rick Warren, all that, that's their theory. They work with anybody. Obama's hired a pastor called Joshua Dubois to head up his Council for Faith-Based and Neighbourhood Partnerships. And he says exactly the same type of things that, uh, and he's supposed to be a pastor, he says, our, our democracy demands, he says the exact same words, that when people are religiously motivated, you have to translate your concerns into universal rather than religion-specified values. You see, we have to base our beliefs on the Word of God. It all started some time ago, apparently. Once you start progressive education and compromising churches, the shift has already started, and people start to use terms like universal and all the rest of it as their guidelines. And no plan will determine, undermine these divisive old truths of the Bible effectively more than Obama's system of service learning he talks about. Service learning. 
through a top-down hierarchy of partnerships, government, down to churches, down to community groups, trained facilitators will guide group dialogue at every level of this pyramid until all participants embrace the evolving consensus. And, you know, there's a group in St. Austin keep contacting me. And they are into this type of thing. They are getting grants from the government. They have formed sort of ecumenical groups in St. Austin. And they're getting grants to do social work. They're all being brainwashed into this service system. And it cuts out all controversy, all uh, truth at the expense of compromise and not uh, annoying other people. And it goes on to say this article, while gathering data on each participant, the leaders of this Washington-based communitarian system will, and this is a quotation, it will launch a program to train the trainers by empowering hundreds of intermediary non-profit and larger faith-based organization to train thousands of local faith-based and community-based organizations on best practices, grant-making procedures, service delivery, and limitations. The quote goes on, the office will host regular training sessions for selected community training partners. These partners, for example, a statewide Islamic umbrella organization, Catholic Charities Office, or Lutheran Services Branch, would be supported to travel to Washington and learn how to train local faith-based and community organizations on remaining in compliance, avoiding proselytizing, understanding hiring rules, and reporting outcomes. These organizations would return to their communities as certified providers of advice. It all sounds a bit like government control. And you know, next year in America, they say there's going to be a, a national census. And it's going to be not controlled by Congress, it's going to be controlled by the White House. And they're waiting to see whether Obama may request whatever private information his plan actually requires. It's all very, it's all terribly subtle. And as I say, it's all started because I've been pestered by these people in Sidonstal to join them. That's enough. Let's go on to Deuteronomy 22. But we're in end times. Let's not pretend and kid ourselves that we're not. <clears throat> Just a short reading in Deuteronomy 22 and we come to verse 5. We'll be reading more scripture later on. But the first verse I want to read is The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. You know, there's an expression, uh, the, the word says, 
clothes maketh the man. Clothes maketh the man. My mother, for one, didn't agree with that. You came in and were proud of yourself because you got a new shirt. You know, she'd say, you know, it, it, the, the, word, the, the clothes don't make the man. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. And in the Bible, really, uh, there's a lot to say about clothes in the Bible, how we dress, how we behave. Uh, in this particular passage, we have the warning of what the world now calls cross-dressing. Over the years, you know, we've seen a fantastic change in the manner in which people dress. We have all these politicians now because people don't wear ties. You have these politicians who look quite ridiculous appearing on the television with no ties. Uh, obviously trying to, to get into the right fashion and trend to appeal to people. With the introduction of, during the war, of women working in factories and we have farm girls and uh, working in munition factories, it seemed appropriate uh, on the grounds of modesty that women wore slacks and other obvious uh, dress codes working in these various occupations. Health and safety and all came into it. However, there always still was a, a dividing line, a clear distinction between the sexes. You know, this, during the, the time in which this Deuteronomy was written, before they moved into the Promised Land, it seemed that uh, a lot of the pagan practices as they worshipped was that men dressed up as women and women dressed up as men. And of course all these pagan uh, religions had a very lewd sexual undercurrent uh, in their practices. And God didn't want his people involved in that type of thing. But you know, it's still rife today. And it's increasing much more than it was when we were younger. We see it, this cross-dressing and uh, blurring of the sexes uh, in our newspapers and TV and in the news broadcasts. We see a rise in homosexuality and lesbianism and this abomination is on the increase. And because of that, you get all these uh, people blurring the, the, between the sexes. We see it also in churches, sadly. And how does the world portray uh, vicars, usually, on, on comedy programs? You take the, the vicar in Dad's army. He's shown as, as a wimpish, effeminate sort of man. Similar the situation happened uh, in Nineveh. If we look at Nahum 3 and verse 13, don't bother turning to it, I'll read it. Behold, it says, uh, the prophet speaking to the people of Nineveh, Thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. What he was saying was that your, your, your men have become a, a pack of old women. And the church leaders today, that's what's happened. 
they're not prepared to speak out they don't want to disturb anybody and what has happened? Satan has been able to get in the gates of thy land shall be set wide open as soon as we go away from the word of God in our attitudes, in our compromising and all the rest of it then the gates are wide open and error starts creeping in we see that today you know God is looking for people who are distinguished by their deportment, by their character, by their dress. Whilst it is important that we dress modestly and soberly, it is far more important as to how the inner man is clothed. How difficult it is for parents today with young teenagers and even smaller children they are dictated by fashion. That, that's the bother. Fashion drives the, the, the industry and how young people dress. I'm always amazed as how some passion, the fashions catch on. Uh, particularly this fashion where trousers seem to be about ten sizes too long and they, they're trailing in the mud. How can you get people to, to wear these things? It's because they're, they're the, the, the people at the head of things. The pop stars and all that create these fashions. I read the other day a piece of father had complained that his daughter of about 13 wanted a new pair of jeans. And he went out with her to buy the jeans and he, she's grown about two or three inches since the last pair she had. It was at that age when kids seemed to shoot up. And he said the problem was that as he saw it, that the two or three inches longer in the leg had been taken off the waist and the midriff. And the trousers were getting lower and lower at the top. And this was a problem for him with his daughter who wanted to be in the height of fashion. We must avoid the fashions of the world which lead to dressing immodestly. Instead, let's look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. And we read from verse 3. Uh, <coughs> from verse 5 he says you, you, your, your life is hid with Christ then how, what, how do we live how should we live mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth fornication and cleanness and ordinary affection evil concupiscence and covetousness which is idolatry for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. That's the way you used to live, he says. But now, and that's the way their, their, their inner man was being dressed with all these ugly and horrible things. But now he says, put off. Take off those kind of garments, those clothes. Take them off. 
anger, wrongs, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Get rid of all the old rights. And have put on the new man. How should a Christian be dressed? Get rid of all the things, the old rags, and put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek, nor Jew, circumcision, nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond and are free, but Christ is all and in all. Push on. Push on. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, as a kind of overcoat, put on charity, love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonition admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and the latest from you too oh no it doesn't say that in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your heart to the Lord whatsoever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God and the Father by him how well dressed are we? Have we put on the new man? May we pray that we do. I was thinking about this, and if you go to Revelation chapter 3, we have another instance of being well dressed. <clears throat> Verse 17, writing to the church in Laodicea, it is said that the church was like this. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They were like the, the story of the king's new clothes. They didn't know that they were naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. They thought that because they were rich and increased with goods, they had need of nothing. They couldn't see how badly off they were. How like so many today? They say that the 
lot of the people today are self-made men who worship their maker. Sadly, many in this credit crunch have found out recently just how easy it is for riches to disappear. People trusted in riches, and we hear every day of firms disappearing, of people going bankrupt. There's a terrible case of, a, of an army officer with a distinguished career, lost all his money, and he couldn't face being bankrupt, and he committed suicide. It's happening all the time. They have discovered that riches are not the answer. But this church found that thought that they were in need of nothing. They thought this, the people in Laodicea, as we would say today, they thought everything in the garden was rosy within the church. We can imagine just the mindset, the mindset of those people. Let us not upset anyone. Don't get too excited and don't get too involved in doctrine and anything which might divide us and have to make hard decisions. We've no trouble in our church. We're, we all get on very well. I remember years ago uh, we were talking to two women uh, who were visiting us and they, they went to different churches in the same town or in adjoining towns. <coughs> and we were talking about one, one of them and she said we have a very happy church. We have no real problems in our church. And we, we just asked them what the type of thing they do. In their little women's group they, they, they met and they did sewing and they had art classes and they had cookery demonstrations and the men had bowls and uh, they had joint meetings with other churches in the area and everything was, they don't bother. And the other church, the other woman said that they did have difficulties in there. And that's a true story. They, they did have difficulties in their church. We asked them what they had. They had Bible classes and prayer meetings. They had outreaches. They had missionaries out on the mission field at home and abroad. And they did have some problems within the church. You know, church one was exactly like the church in Laodicea. The second church... They were having problems. Why? Because they were affecting uh, the, the local community and Satan didn't like that and he caused problems within the church. The other church, the one like Laodicea, wouldn't have any problems because they weren't doing anything which annoyed Satan. God says to the church in Laodicea, he says, you make me sick. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. You're lukewarm, you're neither one thing nor the other, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're blind, and you're naked. And the advice was that they should pray that you will produce works that please me, and that will endure the testing by fire, and remain as gold cleansed of all the dross in the fire of the refiner. And he says, I want you to cover your nakedness. You should be embarrassed, but you're not. 
Because in my sight you're totally naked. Your trust in riches and goods are totally useless in the terms of eternity. You need to trust in the righteousness which I alone can give. I want you to be clothed in my righteousness. Only that will cover your nakedness. You're blind to all that needs to be done. You know the story that Jesus uh, healed a blind man. First he saw men like trees. He didn't see things the way God saw them. The way Jesus saw them. Jesus touched his eyes again. And he saw things clearly. The people in Laodicea couldn't see things as God saw them. They saw them as they saw them. They saw men and women around them like the man seeing men as trees, inanimate objects, not people who needed salvation. They needed to have their eyes touched again. And God says, I, I, I'll give you eye salve to put on your eyes. Do you know when we were kids, we had stuff called golden eye ointment. If anything happened, we had a sty or something. I wonder about this little tube and squeeze some of this golden eye ointment onto our eyes and heal them. Golden eye ointment. We need the, the gold of God's touch on our eyes. We need spiritual golden eye ointment. I give you renewed eyesight, spiritual discernment. And if they did that, if they did that, there was an amazing promise to this church. He says, I'll rebuke you because I love you. Be zealous therefore and repent. And if you do, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. God, the Lord Jesus here, was offering to those who would repent of their self-assuredness they would have the opportunity of going to supper with him. How wonderful. How we clothed with the righteousness which only Christ can give. You know when the prodigal returned in Luke 15 his father said bring forth the best robe. <coughs> Let us leave off the old rags in Colossians 3 and be clothed to put on the new man as set out in Colossians 3 Isaiah 61 verse 10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall be joyful in my God why? for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Christ's righteousness. Not our righteousness. You know, someday <laughs> we'll be presented in heaven. There's going to be a great feast, a great party. It is called a marriage supper of the Lamb. We're all invited. All who have accepted Christ as their Saviour and Lord in true repentance and faith, we'll, they'll be there. We're the bride at this wedding feast. 
Now, I'm sure we all know that young girls look forward to their weddings. There's something wrong if a bride-to-be is not looking forward to the wedding. We had a young girl here who was engaged just at the New Year, and she was excited that this was the year that she was going to get married. We asked her about her honeymoon, uh, and she, she, she wasn't, the, something had been planned for abroad, but she was quite happy if it was in Wales. The main thing was, she was getting married, and she wanted to be with her bridegroom. We will be at this wedding in heaven. We are guaranteed a place at the table. Are we preparing ourselves for that wondrous reception? Listen to what it says in Revelation 19 verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Are we looking forward to it? Is something wrong if we're not? The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a pervile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand. Not e'en where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. But you know, there are also admonitions to us in the church, the bride, as to how we should dress ourselves before the Lord. Before the world. Before the world. In 1 Peter 5 verse 5 it says, All of you should be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Be clothed with humility. Humility. For God resists the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world be humble be clothed with humility we've nothing to be proud of all that we are is because of Jesus Christ we read Ephesians 2 a few weeks ago we who are dead in trespasses and sins wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That's what we were like. Nothing to be proud of. Among whom also 
we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Nothing to be proud of, but God, who was rich in mercy, for his great love for with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. We have to humble ourselves before God. You know, Paul had a loss for which he could be proud. But look, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. The least of the apostles. And then he must have been thinking about that as he wrote to the Ephesians. Ephesians 3 verse 8, he says, I am the least of all the saints. The least of all the saints. Well, he thought, first of all, he was the least of the apostles. And then he got even lower in his estimation of himself, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. And finally, in 1 Timothy 1, 15, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. And that's the way we should clothe ourselves and glorify all that is of God in our lives. May we be clothed in humility. Let us show by our actions, our demeanour, our dress, our Christian deportment, that as we go through this world, we are sons of the King.